Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Private Marion Joseph Losco was the only soldier from Jacksonville's Mandarin community to be killed in battle during World War I, and he's being remembered at the Mandarin Museum and Historical Society. This man walked in here one day with this box and said, this is a story that's very important to my family, I'm afraid... You know, when I die, it may not be passed on. What do you think about this? And immediately I was just, I mean, I had goosebumps. I was about to cry when I looked at those letters. We'll discuss the Florida travels of poet and writer William Colin Bryant. Here's this New England transplant traveling around, kind of giving his outside observations of, of what was happening in the state. And we'll talk about the Grand Army of the Republic. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. I'm in France now, mother, and writing to you. The countryside has a beautiful view. Haystacks and wheat fields sparkling with dew. They call their best wine champagne. Please write to me, whatever you do. Maybe you send a box full of food. I'd feel much better if I could see you. Mother, please write to me soon. So mother, don't worry, I'll get along fine. They teach us to sing to pass the time. Your only son now has to go with private Marion Joseph Lasco. That's Florida folk musician Al Poindexter performing his song based on the letters of Private Marion Joseph Lasco, the only soldier from Jacksonville's Mandarin community to be killed in battle during World War I. There's a book of Lasco's Letters Home called A Soldier's Story and a companion exhibit at the Mandarin Museum and Historical Society where Sandy Arpin is president. We know of a local man that we do feature in an exhibit here who was a farmer. And his family had a um, grape orchard here and made wine and sold vegetables and he was really, really important to the family business. Uh, He was the oldest son and he was drafted and sent to France and and died in France. So I would think that that was probably the story of most of the men in Florida who who went. They probably were doing work that their families depended on them for. And my guess is they didn't have any idea why they were going. World War I especially was so confusing and complicated and why it started. And my guess is that when this man went, and probably most of them, They really didn't know what it was all about, but they went because they were drafted and it was their duty to go. World War I began when Archduke Francis Ferdinand, heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, was murdered. The Austrians declared war against Serbia, putting the alliance of Russia, France, and Great Britain to war against the alliance of Germany and Austria-Hungary. In 1917, America joined the conflict against the Germans and sent Florida's Marion Joseph Lasco to France, where he fought and died. 
Bosco's Family Winery is preserved in the Walter Jones Historical Park adjacent to the Mandarin Museum. His mother and his father both emigrated here from Italy and his mother's family, um, there's still a winery in uh, Italy with, the, with, the, with her name, uh, her family name. But they had a small winery um, in Mandarin about three miles from here. And, but they also had a big farm, a vegetable farm. And uh, there were many children and they lived in a, in a farmhouse, you know. And um, they were a big part of the community that we call Loretto. It was the Loretto part of what is now Mandarin. A lot of Catholic families there, they were very, very religious family, helped start the uh, St. Joseph's Catholic Church, which is in the Loretto area. And so they were very prominent in that part of the community. They were very active in that part of the community. They were very well known, and there's a road named after them, Losco Road, here in um, the Loretto area of Mandarin. Paul Giotto is the great-nephew of Marion Joseph Lasco and a volunteer at the Mandarin Museum and Historical Society. They had um, initially 160 acres. Seven acres of that was devoted to raising uh, Scuppernong grapes, from which they made approximately 40 barrels of wine per year. The rest of the property, and as far as farming goes, was basically truck farming, vegetable farming, and so on, which you would then sell. Uh, in season to local restaurants, hotels, schools, this type of thing. Um, the winery was um, just one aspect of the total farm operation. And as far as we know, that's basically what he did as a young man. Um, we have no idea how far he went in school, formal schooling. Uh, a, a nano mine who has since passed away said that at the time he uh, enlisted that he was driving a hack in Jacksonville. Uh, which uh, we're not sure if that was a horse and buggy or if it was actually a vehicle. But uh, we, so far we have found no records showing that he was a licensed hack driver or so on. Um, he made no mention of that in his letters and we have found no. So as far as know, on his sign-up papers, he was listed as a farmer. Documents and artifacts illuminating Marion Joseph Lasco's experiences during World War I are included in an exhibit at the Mandarin Museum. Sandy Arpin. We were very fortunate to, um, to be given by one of the Lasco family members, who, the man who lived in the farmstead the last, and then it was sold and it's now become a subdivision. Um, and he found in the attic a box of letters that Marion Lasco had written to his mother and his sister, mostly to his family members, and his mother had kept all the letters. After he was killed, she of course kept the telegram that said he was missing in action, the telegram that said he was dead, the information from the army that said, um, would you like to come to his grave, or do you want him to come home, or do you want him to stay in France? So all of this correspondence and communication was in this box, as well as the things that the army sent back from France after he died. He was only there two months, and he died. Um, you know, before the war ended. And um, in that box were a lot of religious medals. He had quite a few St. Christopher medals and, and rosary beads and things like that. There was also a half-smoked cigar. So in his letters, he talked about how he missed a good cigar, but when he got one, he would smoke it and keep it and then come back to it. But he didn't get back to finish the cigar. And we have that on display as well as all these things that were sent to his family and copies of the letter and, and the telegrams and so forth. Um, 
And it, it was just amazing. I mean, this, this man walked in here one day with this box and said, this is a story that's very important to my family. I'm afraid, you know, when I die, it may not be passed on. What do you think about this? And immediately I was just, I mean, I had goosebumps. I was about to cry when I looked at those letters. Private Lasco's letters have been organized into a book called The Soldier Story. The book was edited by Paul Giotto, a third-generation Jacksonville native retired from the National Park Service and the Naval Reserve. When Giotto agreed to transcribe the letters, he didn't realize that the soldier who wrote them was a relative. Sandy Arpin, the executive director of the Mandarin Museum and Historical Society, we, we became acquainted when I was director at the then Jacksonville Maritime Heritage Center downtown. And as we were uh, folding that museum up, we were making available to other museums like the Mandarin one, uh, artifacts that we had in the museum. And she came down and selected several. And we began talking and she knew of my background with the Park Service and, and history. And she told me that she had a project that if I was interested in, uh, it would be a great help. Basically transcribing letters from a World War I soldier to his family back home. And we, she wanted that transcription then placed in some kind of exhibit with the World War I exhibit centennial coming up. And uh, when I came out here and met with her and we looked in the archive section in the back, the first thing I said was, well, these are letters from my great uncle, my dad's namesake from World War I. And she was floored and I was kind of floored because all we knew about him was just a tad. We knew he was buried in France. We had the one photograph taken of him in uniform, but really his story was basically untold to that point. To tell his great uncle's story, Giotto had to rely on letters and documents as details of Private Lasco's life weren't remembered by any living relatives. Well, by the time we started looking into his life, all of his siblings, and there were 11 of them who went to age, two died young, all of his siblings had died quite a few years before. And so nobody in the family was still alive who remembered Marion growing up, uh, going into the army, et cetera. And so that was kind of tough. And so we began to check local church records, the Catholic church down the street at St. Joe's. And uh, we found baptismal records, confirmation records. Um, and then of course through ancestry.com and things like that, Sandy's husband, Tracy, found uh, draft registration papers uh, going through uh, the newspapers, we found mention of uh, his death, for instance. Um, we found copies of ship's manifest going to Europe, going by train from here to Camp Jackson, a manifest. And so little by little began putting together his life because there was nobody alive to tell us anything about him. While the letters of Private Lasco do provide some insight into his wartime experiences, Giotto says there are still some tantalizing mysteries. Well, first of all, having transcribed letters from people like Andrew Jackson, uh, I was afraid that it might be difficult. But his handwriting was very clear, very clean, uh, a few misspellings. We kept everything basically as he wrote it, grammar and composition style purposes. About the time I'd get into a letter of his and was looking for some real meat, he would end by saying, well, I guess I have to close for now. Write soon. Please send me a letter. Uh, but we were able to glean quite a bit of Camp Blythe up Camp Jackson and then later at Camp Mills on Long Island. Uh, when he got to Europe, where we really were hoping to get some meat, uh, he would say basically the same thing, but with a caveat saying, I can't say anything right now because his letters were reviewed by a censor. 
in his unit, usually a second lieutenant. And he did make one statement saying, when I get home, I can tell you all about it. And of course, he never made it home. In addition to letters, documents, and artifacts from Private Losco, the exhibit at the Mandarin Museum includes an authentic uniform and other items inspired by his correspondence. We wanted to make sure that um, we could outfit the mannequin as close as possible to an average recruit. And since he mentioned that uh, in one letter that on guard duty he had to carry a, a big tall gun that must weigh at least 10 pounds with a long knife on the end, a bayonet. So he wanted to make sure he had a, a long gun with, with a knife such as he had. And basically the soldier here, the particular uniform you see on display actually belonged to a real soldier. And the fellow who owns it bought it really at a, at a flea market in total. So he has various markings and uniforms items on him that a basic recruit uh, would not have that you don't see in his boot camp portrait that, that was taken of him. But uh, that's as close as we can get to bringing Marian Lasco and the others from Mandarin back to life. Gianto says he has an emotional connection to this project since Lasco was a lost relative. Well, as I mentioned before, I've dealt with people like Andrew Jackson and other people in my Park Service career, but they were long gone and totally removed from me personally. To see the letters and knowing myself having been in the military and, and written similar letters home, uh, to see letters that he wrote either late at night, daytime, on guard duty, in France under a hay bale, as he said one day uh, after church, standing the test of time and being enclosed in the same envelopes, and I'm not sure how many people have read them since. Um, it's like he came back to life, and I, I wish he could have been sitting like we are right now so I could ask him questions to fill in the blanks. Of course, we can't do that, but we may find out other things. You can read the letters of Private Marion Joseph Losco in the book A Soldier's Story and see them on display in the Mandarin Museum. You can also visit the family winery on the property. One of Losco's letters said he missed drinking his family's wine. Yes, he did. At one point he said, all we have here in camp is uh, soda and beer. And he really missed his dad's cold wine. And uh, when he went to France, um, he did say that the best wine he tasted was the champagne, but it was very expensive. All the other wine he tasted what he considered somewhat inferior to what he grew on the land here in Duval County. Jacksonville's Mandarin Museum and Historical Society is located on the St. Johns River in southern Duval County. So mother, don't worry, I'll get along fine. They teach us to sing to pass the time. Your only son now has to go. Private Marion Joseph This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, there's a long history of important writers in Florida, and we're talking about a famous poet today. 
Yeah, that's right, Ben. And and oftentimes when we talk about writers and folks who either lived in Florida or possibly visited the state, um, that list would include, of course, Ernest Hemingway, Zora Neale Hurston, uh, folks like that. But most people probably wouldn't automatically think of uh, one of America's earliest indigenous poets, a man named William Cullen Bryant, who is probably most well known for his work in, in and around New York and New England, um, but he was also a well-known traveler. He traveled all over the United States. He traveled around Europe, South America, the Caribbean, um, and he spent some time in Florida. And he wrote about his uh, his travels and his time in Florida. And, and of course, as a, as a poet, as a writer, he had a very unique take and, and a, a romanticized way of, of explaining the circumstances of the people of Florida during the territorial period. So this is shortly after the United States had taken control of Florida after 18 21. Um, he doesn't visit until the 1840s, 1843 to be specific, uh, and actually travels on the St. John's River. So he gets the, the kind of quintessential 19th century Florida experience, you know, traveling up the, the St. John's River and into what we would consider kind of virgin wilderness, and at the time was still very much a frontier. And this is also just after the end of the Second Seminole War, or at least kind of a cessation of hostilities in the Seminole conflicts in, in the 1840s. So he's sort of dealing with and writing about the consequences of what was a major conflict in Florida and throughout the United States. And here's this uh, New England transplant traveling around, kind of giving his outside observations of, of what was happening in the state. Now, you have here a first edition of a book of William Colin Bryant's letters, some of which were written in Florida. Yeah, that's right, Ben. What we're looking at is a first printing, first edition of William Cullen Bryant's Letters of a Traveler, Notes of Things Seen in Europe and America. And this was originally published up in New York in 1850. And it was very popular, in in fact, so popular that he printed a second edition in uh, the late 1850s and and actually continued publishing a lot of his uh, travelogues in in magazines. He he later became editor of the New York Evening Post, and he's probably most well-known for his work with that uh, newspaper. So a lot of his letters originally appeared in these newspapers, but in 1850, he compiled these uh, letters into um, what became kind of a travelogue about his time. And they're not really in chronological order, but the earliest of his Florida writings date back to 1843. He talks a lot about the city of St. Augustine in particular. He was really taken back by the, the scenery, uh, the people who lived in St. Augustine, the culture of St. Augustine really at that time. And again, this is really just after the end of the Spanish period, really centuries of Spanish rule. And he talks about the Menorcan settlements and the vestiges of, of Spanish culture that still exist in St. Augustine. So I'll read here a, a passage that uh, kind of describes when Bryant and his party first arrived in St. Augustine. He says here, quote, At length we emerged upon a scrubby pine and finally came in sight of this oldest city of the United States, seated among its trees in a sandy swell of land where it had stood for three hundred years. I was struck with its ancient and homely aspect, even at a distance, and could not help likening it to pictures which I had seen of Dutch towns, though it wanted a windmill or two to make the resemblance perfect. We drove into a green square in the midst of which was a monument erected to commemorate the Spanish Constitution of 1812, and thence through the narrow streets of the city to our hotel, end quote. Now, he uh, spent some time in St. Augustine, again, traveled up the St. John's River. He talks a lot about the orange groves. He talks about the planters. He talks about a lot of the enslaved peoples and what their appearances were like. And and, uh, speaking with some of the the folks who were in and around St. Augustine, he kind of got a feel for, for the people who lived in this town. Now, he came back to Florida, and he traveled quite a bit 
between the southeast and Havana. He spent a lot of time in Havana, Cuba, so of course sailed along the east coast of Florida. Uh, He landed in Key West for the first time in in the late 1840s and 1849, and he had kind of a a different interpretation. He talks a lot about the wreckers. You know, the the biggest industry at that time in the 1840s was, of course, um, taking advantage of ships who had wrecked along the, uh, the coast there. And when coming to Key West, he says here, quote, We fell in with a man who had lived 13 years at Key West. He told us that its 3,000 inhabitants had four places of worship, an Episcopal, a Catholic, a Methodist, and a Baptist church. And the drinking houses, which we saw open, with such an elaborate display of bottles and decanters, were not resorted to by the people of the place, but were the haunt of English and American sailors, whom the disasters or the regular voyages of their vessels had brought hither. He also gave us an account of the hurricane of September 1846, which overflowed and laid waste to the land, end quote. So it's filled with these really wonderful quotes and these uh, fascinating vignettes into the lives of the people living in territorial Florida. And William Colin Bryant has another kind of unusual tie to Florida history, right? Yeah, that's right. So almost a century later in 1942, a Liberty ship or a cargo ship that was built specifically for transporting goods between the United States and the Pacific and and around the world during the Second World War was named in his honor, the SS William Cullen Bryant. Uh, It was actually not made in Florida. It was manufactured up in Washington state. And on its maiden voyage, it sailed from Hawaii through the Panama Canal, was coming through the Caribbean and actually sailing through the Florida Straits in between Key West and Havana, Cuba, where about a century before William Cullen Bryant had actually been. He had sailed those exact same waters. And unfortunately, the SS William Cullen Bryant was struck by a torpedo from a German U-boat in 1942, and it didn't sink. It was actually towed into uh, Tampa Bay from there to Philadelphia, was refloated and uh, served out the rest of the war from 1944 onward. So uh, his namesake ship actually sailed the same waters that he had traveled through Florida about a century later. Interesting as always. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To see some of William Colin Bryant's letters, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. There's been a lot of discussion recently about the removal of Confederate monuments and statues. Getting less attention is the sacrifice both black and white soldiers made to preserve the Union and end slavery. Independent producer Chris Howell spoke with Barbara Gannon, associate professor of history at the University of Central Florida, about the sacrifice of Union soldiers and the post-Civil War veterans organization called the Grand Army of the Republic. Founded in 1866, the Grand Army of the Republic, or GAR, was the first U.S. veterans organization. Both black and white Civil War veterans from all branches of Union forces were members. The group became one of the first and most powerful organized advocacy groups in American politics. The GAR supported voting rights for black veterans and helped to make Memorial Day a national holiday. In the 1880s, the GAR lobbied Congress to establish regular veterans' pensions. Here's University of Central Florida history professor Barbara Gannon with details. The GAR was the largest veterans organization of the Union Army, or the Confederate Army for that matter. It believed in both 
being a model of patriotism, but also in fraternity with former soldiers and charity for soldiers that needed help. By 1890, it was at least 400,000 members, which made it the largest, most influential political and social organization of its time. And unlike just about every other social and political organization of its time, it was integrated and understood itself as an interracial organization. Gannon's research found that while discrimination of black veterans by white veterans did happen, it was the exception rather than the rule. She learned that black and white veterans of this period enjoyed a unique bond that all soldiers, regardless of race, have when living through the terrible shared struggle and suffering of war. People who had studied it talked about black GAR men as not being treated well or as equals in this group. But I found that they were treated very well, that they were seen as comrades. So once I came up with the understanding that there was a comradeship, a close relationship, that seemed to transcend race-based barriers in the 19th century, I had to explain it because people almost didn't believe it. Well, what I came to was the one cause, W-O-N, in opposition to the lost cause, that these men shared comradeship but also understood that the war had been a war. They fought together in order to both save the Union and free the slaves. A legendary regiment, the 54th Massachusetts, were featured in the film Glory. They were among the first black recruits to enlist to fight for the Union. On February 20, 1864, the 54th and other Union troops marched west from Jacksonville. Gannon says they met a sizable Confederate force at Olusty and met disaster. What had happened was the Union commander decided just to march west. So he just kept moving and he didn't have good intelligence. He did not realize that a Confederate force of about the same size he had, about 5,000, were setting up to meet him on the road near what is Alusty today. Now, the 54th was there, the 8th U.S. Colored Troops, the 13th, 35th U.S. Colored Troops, there were a bunch of black units and white units. And, for example, they had a various combat experience. They met an equal size number of dug in Confederates and they lost very badly. Now what was interesting was the 8th USCT was very new and they did not do that well as all units without much experience do. The 54th saved the day. The 54th protected the rear guard. They fought a holding action all the way back to protect the rest of the units that were retreating. Confederate monuments and statues have been removed or relocated in Bradenton, Daytona Beach, Gainesville, and Orlando. Gannon says remembering the South's lost cause is romantic, but it's just as important to remember the Union's sacrifice. I think one of the most important things, and it has a lot to do with modern controversies about statues and monuments and such, there was a Union side of the war. People fought both to preserve the Union and free the slaves, they fought to end that terrible institution. And we have totally forgotten it. Where are the Union monuments? At Alusty, there are no Union monuments. Everyone knows the only dead there are Union. There are bodies somewhere buried there. So I would say, look to your own state. Look at Alusty. So that's what I would ask people, to remember the Union cause. 
Barbara Gannon is Associate Professor of History at UCF and is the author of The One Cause, Black and White Comradeship in the Grand Army of the Republic. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Chris Howell. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker, and this week, Chris Howell. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.